Welcome. You are listening to Mountain View Scattered. This is an audio companion to our weekly church gatherings. It is a way to stay connected while you are away and to learn more about our community, how we can best reach and serve it. I'm your host, Wade. Alrighty. Well, a very good morning to everybody and um, yo, welcome to Mountain View Hermanus again. It's uh, been an interesting week and I'm sure that um, if you uh, were paying attention to the verses we just read, you would have been praying for me, as many of you were, I know. So thank you for those prayers. Um, I do covet them. We're carrying along in our series in the Gospel of Mark, and it's been really good um, up to now. We've been challenged and stretched in many ways. Um, but just a reminder for those of you who are maybe new or have just nodded off and forgotten, but we believe that the Bible is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. That is that God has breathed that He's given it, that's inspired, and inerrant means that the Bible has no errors, there's no mistakes in it. And when we say this, we're referring to the original uh, manuscripts that were written, but we also believe that God has preserved that. And what we have today in our translations uh, and the manuscripts that we still have um, are accurate and reliable to teach us uh, what it is God would have us learn. And we hold these in highest esteem and we explore them with humility and awe. We put very high uh, um, emphasis and uh, value on uh, often preaching right through books of the Bible. Now, to some, this might seem uh, a little bit strange, but <clears throat> what I believe that that does um, is it really helps us to, chan- uh, to tackle verses that often we don't get to, often that are seemingly boring, uh, obscure, sometimes a little confusing even, uh, and also to direct us to challenging verses that are going to really hit us head on and challenge what it is uh, we believe. Before I continue, I just need to start my little timer so that I don't keep you guys here for uh, too long. Alrighty. Although I'm sure you'd love it, every minute of it, all two hours of this really long sermon. So, where are we? We are going to be in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35. And the main point that we're going to see, the big idea I want you to take away from today is that God's grace is bigger than the failings of his people. We're going to see today also that Jesus is an equal opportunity offender in many ways. He offends the Pharisees, but he also, in a way, it can seem, offends his family. That's, that's what it looks like when you just read these verses. We are going to have our perceptions of who Jesus is challenged. He's maybe not just this meek and mild and, and uh, airy-fairy type of guru that many in the world would have us think that he is. He'll challenge us on things. Uh, we're going to see verses about sins that apparently can't be forgiven. And that should really raise our, prick our ears up and make us go, what? That's, that's, what do you mean there's sins that can't be forgiven? What, what is grace about? And this will be shocking to us. Um, but it should also bring alertness to us and uh, to those who are in ways resisting Christ. So, let's read the verses again. Verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, 
they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. So first, let's uh, look at verse 20. It says he went home. So he was in around the, the Sea of Galilee, and he's gone back home into Capernaum. And this big crowd is still following him. They're out in the wilderness, so many that he had to get off the shore and preach in the boat. Now he's headed home, and this crowd is following along with him. Um, his family has heard about this. They heard that it's, it's so busy that he hasn't even got a chance to eat. Uh, and they then are seeing that, no, this is something that's quite serious. We need to get in there, and we need to seize him. That word seize is the same word that's used later in the Gospel of Mark for arresting. So this is serious. They're like, no, we need to go and stop him from what he's doing. And obviously, they believe that um, you know, these reports that they were hearing were true and that they wanted to help him for his own good. This is maybe what his family was thinking as they wanted to do this, but we'll get into that. Then verse 22, we're introduced to the scribes. Now, who are these guys? They are the Jewish scholars, uh, essentially like uh, lawyers of the day, if you will, who come down from Jerusalem. They know the law really, really well. They tear it apart. They look into it. They uh, are sort of the elite religious guys at the time. And they come down from Jerusalem. The key word there is down. It's uh, often not that it was higher up. Uh, it seems that coming down from Jerusalem is the term that's used no matter where you were geographically. And it seems to be uh, giving us this idea that they condescend themselves. They're like, you know, we're going to leave our high and mighty place. We're going to come down to you, uh, commoners, to help you understand things a little bit better. So they're, they're coming down to basically clear up this mess about this guy, Jesus, who's doing these works uh, seemingly in God's power. They're going to come and clear that up for us. So, point one, Jesus' way of life raises questions. His family don't understand it. They've seen his unconventional lifestyle. Uh, they think it's a little irrational. Um, and he sees, they, they see that others are always imposing themselves on him, and he helps them. And he just does it and does it and does it to the point where he's not even getting a chance to eat. Uh, and they're saying, well, at, at best, this is irrational. He's, he's just not working things out. At worst, he's actually just gone insane. Verse 22 says, that the scribe said he is possessed by Beelzebul. So the scribes also see something different about Jesus' way of life. But them and their hard-heartedness are basically saying that what he's doing is not by the Spirit of God, but is by Beelzebul. It says, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So we see three responses so far by people who are looking at what Jesus is doing in the world. Implicitly, we see that the crowd who was with him out in uh, the, the Galilee area around the sea have followed him in. They see something in his life that's attractive. They want to know more about what he's doing. They're hearing his message, and they're, they're pulled in. They're intrigued. They want to know. That's the implicit one. We gather that from reading the text and seeing what's happening. Then there's two explicit uh, things that we see. That is that are right there in the text. And the first is his family says he's crazy. That's the second response. And then the third response is that people say he's possessed by the devil. So, 
last week we spoke about what Jesus was doing and how this seemed to be like really booming ministry success. He's got people coming from all around and, you know, it's so, so good that he has to, you know, buy a pastor's boat and be offshore in that. But this week we see something a little bit different. Um, and it's, it's, it's pretty much like, I was trying to think of a good illustration, I couldn't really, but imagine, you know, we hear that the church is growing, but imagine the next two, three weeks, the church just doubles and doubles, and um, other churches in the area start looking at it, and, and people are asking, oh man, there's something going on there, we need to decide what it is, and say, well, you know, some of the other pastors get together, and, and one says to the other, well, you know, they are doing really well. It's, it's, it's a lot of good stuff going on there. But um, that Wade guy, yeah, he's, it's, it's actually because he's possessed by the devil. And that's, that's why they're having such good ministry success. But, I don't know, bad analogy. But still, that's sort of the idea. It's, it's they see something happening, and they, they have to come up with something to explain it. So the, the scribes are seeing what Jesus is doing, and they're saying, it must be because he's possessed by the devil. It's, it's not right. Um, it's evil. So the question, burning question, I've alluded to, I've said the devil, who is Beelzebul? I know that's the, the burning question in everyone's hearts and on your lips. Who is this and what is actually going on? He is uh, described as Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And the simple answer that we get from following along in the verses is that Jesus clears it up. He says, this is Satan. But the, I just thought, I'd dig into this a little bit. It's interesting, Beelzebul, is the, uh, an older word that's used to describe the, a, a god, a, a capricious and mean god of the Philistines. And what the Israelites did was take that name, uh, and you see it in other Gospels, they call it Beelzebub. And that's basically a little stab at them, uh, and it's, it's a play on words, the B-U-L and the B-U-B in English. And it's basically they're calling that god, oh, shame, Lord of the Flies. That, that's what some of the, the commentaries say. I found that quite interesting. You know, the Israelites, who, as they were going along into these lands, saw that the, they had these different gods, and um, the one was this Beelzebul, who they called Beelzebub, as a bit of a, a stab. So what's interesting, though, is that these guys, the scribes are, are referring to this Beelzebul, this uh, mythical god of the Philistines, and they're saying, oh, that's, that's the power that Jesus has. That's how he's doing the miracles. Jesus doesn't come and, you know, just leave that. He actually clears it up. He says, no, 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 that, that's, it's, it's not Beelzebul that you're referring to. There is an evil that's out there, and it's Satan. He, he names it. The second point is that there is a real and literal spiritual enemy. And Jesus says, this is a real guy, and his name is Satan. And yeah, it's not, a, it's not a little scare, uh, scare tactic that we tell kids at night to, you know, uh, go to bed or to eat their greens, otherwise, you know, the devil's going to come get you. No, Jesus affirms that this is a real and literal enemy. Jesus believes in this real and literal being, being who is God's opposition. And if Jesus affirms this, um, we affirm this too. And why is that? Because we're not smarter than Jesus. Uh, in the, the culture that we live in, there's... Uh, the idea of a spiritual enemy, of demons, of angels even, um, is weird. People are, like, are moving, trying to move away from that, where you know, everything has to be empirical and scientifically based. So the idea of a real and literal devil seems quite weird to them. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 there is a literal 
enemy. There is a literal opposition to God who is a literal being, a fallen angel, and his name is Satan. And if Jesus is affirming that, even though we're 2,000 years down the line, we have to affirm that too. It's clear in Scripture. And the guy who, get, who walks out of the grave gets to call the shots on that. Jesus affirms many, many things that are going to seem really countercultural to us, but that's a good thing. They're going to challenge us, but that's a really good thing. And I say that because if you have an idea of God that never challenges you, that never disagrees with you, then that idea of God isn't God at all. And that's not a God that I would want to follow, and it's not a God that you should follow. God is bigger. God knows better. We have his word, and that is going to challenge us and stretch us in our thinking, and we need to come to Scripture knowing that and bow our knee to Scripture. A lot of what Jesus teaches doesn't align with the wisdom of the world, and a few of those things that we would get challenged on is that Jesus affirms a creation, that the world was created by a creator, not just some accidental explosion that somehow happened. He affirms that man, people, you and I sitting here are special creations created by God in his image, not the accidental random chance of mutations that lead you to this chain of uh, higher complexity of organisms and finally, oh, we've reached humans. No, we're a special creation. Neo-Darwinian evolution remodel is flawed and false. Marriage is the only context in which sexual relations can occur and should occur. Jesus affirms that. We should affirm that, even when the culture says the complete opposite of that. And that's challenging. That's hard for us to sometimes grapple with. He also affirms that that marriage is a heterosexual marriage. That is, it's a man and woman. He doesn't ever speak of other kinds of marriage, not because he wants to just let them slide, but because they weren't even part of his worldview. These things were not on the cards for him. So that is going to be challenging. He, he affirms many, many things that are challenging, but one of the things for today is that he affirms that there is a real and literal spiritual enemy who is Satan, and he is still uh, operating today. So, Jesus responds to the Pharisees. Now, we're moving away. There's a technique that's used in Scripture here today, and it's, um, it's called, uh, I think, I don't know how official, how official this term is, but the sandwich technique. So you'll find this a lot in the Gospels. There'll be an idea that the author is using, and then he kind of sneaks in another little idea. Um, an illustration that would be um, if I'm chatting to Robin about my day, you know, oh, you know, I did this and that, and then I bring up someone, uh, say like, oh, one of the guys I work with, oh, by the way, that guy that I work with, and then I tell a story about him, and then I return to telling her what my day was like. That's kind of the idea. We do this in our everyday speech, and this is how the, uh, Mark records a bit of this. So we see he mentions his family and that they came down uh, from, they came out from Nazareth to sort of stop him what he's doing, and then he moves on to talking about the Pharisees, and then he interjects how he answers the Pharisees, and then after that, returns, Mark returns to telling, uh, telling us about what happened with his family. So, and he called them to him, uh, he called them to him, and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, 
that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Okay. Verse 23, he says, he calls them to himself. This is amazing. This is, we see these guys who are coming out, they're basically slandering him, blaspheming him, blaspheming him saying he is possessed by the devil. That's how he's casting out these demons. That's how he's doing these good works. That's why all these people are following them. He's deceiving them. These same people who are just so blatantly uh, uh, attacking him, he doesn't just you know, dish out judgment straight away. He doesn't bring out the stick and start beating them. He calls them to himself. This gracious and loving Jesus sees these people, sees their mistake, but he doesn't first, you know, just write them off. He calls them to himself. This is, and this is amazing news for sinners. This is a, a, an amazing uh, attribute of Jesus that we see, this patience and this love, even in the face of people slandering him in such a way. They're basically accusing him of being Satan, but he calls them near to loving correction. But indeed, he does correct them and tell them that they are wrong. Our culture today, you can't disagree with someone and tell them they're wrong. You can't say that the way someone is living is wrong, but Jesus does that. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This, that I mentioned at the beginning, our, our perception of Jesus might be challenged today. We see he's not just this soft and you know, always loving and, and you know, letting things slide, but he is, the, he is God. He is ultimate in his wisdom, and he brings that and challenges and corrects, sometimes quite sternly, and we see that through this parable that he uses to explain what's going on. He uses what we call just simple logic. It's, quite, it's actually quite funny. You, you see what the scribes are doing, and, and Jesus sees that, and he just points it out. He says, why would Satan, who causes demon possession, be so concerned with reversing that same demon possession? It just it kind of makes no sense. It's saying the one who's causing someone to be afflicted and downcast and, and possessed by the demon, why would the one who's causing that not be the one to come and stop that. It doesn't make sense. It's kind of it's a contradiction. So Jesus points that out first. He says, a kingdom divided, this is to push his point a bit further, he says, well, a kingdom divided, that's, that's a civil war that's going on in that, in that land, in that country, and that leads to destruction always. Look around at the world, look at civil war that's going on, it tears countries apart, it doesn't unify them and keep them strong. He uses the uh, illustration of a house divided, now, you know, if there's strife in the home, it's not unified. It's, it's not a cohesive whole. Jesus reduces the scribe's accusation to personal, political, domestic, and physical absurdities. They're saying, the guy, well, guys, guys, just stop. Like, what you're saying doesn't make sense. I get it. You, you guys are confused. You've you you got fervor and zeal. Yes, come reason with me. Let me show you how you're wrong, and then we can move on. Verse uh, 27 says, no, uh, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. I'm just going to read that again. 
but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed may plunder the house. Now, always when I would read this, uh, this part of the narrative, I would, I would track with the parable about the kingdom divided and Satan cast out Satan. I get that. But this part was always a little more confusing to me. I was like, oh, but who's the strong man? What's the house? What are the goods? What are we talking about here? What, what's actually going on, Jesus? What are you saying? And um, maybe for you it's not that confusing. Maybe I'm just a little slow on the uptake. It's very possible. But um, I think maybe make some notes in your Bible if this does confuse you as it does me. I'm going to go through what the, what the pieces of that are. So first, the strong man. Uh, the, the strong man in this is Satan. Okay. The burglar is Jesus. Now, it sounds strange. Why is Jesus telling a story where he's the burglar in the story? He's just using this as a parable, and it's good. One must be stronger than Satan, and that is, uh, it's, it's Satan's house. So Satan's in the house. That's the picture. You've got to be stronger than Satan to enter into his house, which is his domain. If you look at it as the picture of this house, is, he's talking about that in terms of real life. So you've got to be stronger than Satan, who's in the house, which is his domain, to restrain his actions, that is to bind him, so in the text says bind him, that is to restrain his actions, and to free, which is the word plunder there in the text, uh, his people, which are the goods, from his control. So one must be stronger than Satan to enter his domain, restrain his actions, free the people from his control. Okay, hope that simplifies it. But the unavoidable, unavoidable implication that is brought out uh, to the scribes through this question uh, is that who is more powerful? If, you, if you're still a bit confused, just it's asking, Jesus is asking the question. Who's, or he's making the point, and the question is, who's more powerful? Is Satan more powerful, or is the, who, who is more powerful that could actually drive out demons who is not Satan? And there is only one answer. It has to be God who drives out demons. It has to be the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what the scribes were avoiding by bringing up the whole injunction that Jesus is doing this by the power of Satan in the first place. Point number three. There is a real and literal enemy, as we've said in point number two, but ultimately he is defeated. Real and literal enemy, Satan, but ultimately he is defeated. So as we've seen, Jesus doesn't debunk this as some strange myth in terms of what's going on. He doesn't say, oh, no, no, there's actually no devil and whatnot. He's saying, no, there is definitely a real and literal devil, but, and his name is Satan, but he brings clarity and understanding for those who are listening. He says, no, no, he's still around, but he is being defeated. He's being bound up. This will come to an end. We see it in the text. So the question is, like, well, if Satan is defeated, ultimately, then why do we still see things going wrong? Why do we still see lies? Why is there still so much sickness and suffering? And why are there these um, other religions that seem to contradict what God is teaching? Um, and the answer I can only really give you in an illustration. Uh, who watched the rugby yesterday? No, no one, or two, one or two. Good. Three. Okay. Good, 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 good. Okay, so they totally ruined my illustration because their score wasn't good enough. <laughs> Thank you, Springboks, for nothing. Um, 
Okay, what was the score? 23-12. Uh, yeah, well done. Um, but I was hoping that they would have a bit of a higher score. So imagine this. Imagine rugby game or soccer game. Let, let's take a uh, rugby match. Okay. The winning team is on 100 points. And the team, the, the game's still going on. It's not finished. But it's basically two minutes left in the game. And there's 100 points on the board for one team and only seven for the other team. Even if the winning team had to just sit down on the field, the opposing team in that, those two minutes that are left would not be able to score enough goals to win. There's just no way they could come back. So the game technically is still going on. They're still putting up a fight. They're still uh, hitting the other team and tackling them. And, and it looks like there's still this struggle going on. But if you take a step back and look at, oh, there's this much time left and the scores, wow, that's like an impressive score. There's no way that team can win. That's kind of what's going on in the world today. They, they, we're in the last two minutes of, of, this, uh, of this game, and there is still an act of opposition, but ultimately, Christ has already won. And we know that, and we know that the game will come to an end, in a way. We trust in Christ's power to overcome evil in the world and in our lives and in our hearts as we are sanctified. Verse 28, truly I said to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Okay. Truly I say to you, this is where um, there's your, your friend sitting next to you and Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this is where you nudge him and you say, hey, hey, wake up, wake up, wake up. We've got to listen. He's going to say something important. Wherever Jesus starts something by saying, truly I say to you, you know you've got to listen because it's going to be big. He's going to drop something and shake it up. So Jesus says, truly I say to you. And now what follows is difficult. He says two things. And I contend that the first that I'm going to point out is bigger and better than the second. The first is that all sins will be forgiven, whatever blasphemies they utter. Now, before you get so focused in the verse that says, oh, there's this one sin that, you, that, that is unforgivable, it's this eternal sin. People, we, we go straight there and we go like, oh my goodness, have I done that? Have I accidentally done that? Do I, did I stumble into doing that? Or, or, or what should I do? Does someone need to tell me if I'm stumbling? Do I need help in this? We skip over this amazing and glorious truth that comes before that. All sins will be forgiven people, whatever that might be. And we need to dwell in that and focus on that first and glory in the forgiveness that God has offered us in passing over this multitude of other sins uh, through the mercy and atoning work of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes and he comforts those who are afflicted, those who are wrestling and struggling and stuck in certain sins, he doesn't come and like start beating with the stick off the bat. He says, no, 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 listen. This is great news. And, and, and for you who are struggling, who would say with the Apostle Paul, you know, I, I do the things that I don't want to do. And the things that I want to do, I just can't seem to do them. He comes and he says, that's okay. I'm going to pass over all of those sins. And by my grace uh, that you would receive through faith, uh, faith I'm going to infuse you with the, the, the power and the motivation and the, and the strength 
to overcome those things as I work through you with my Holy Spirit. This is amazing news for us who are struggling. We know, A, we are forgiven when you come to Christ and ask for, for that in faith. And B, he will move us along by giving us the strength to move past that and deal with that as he makes us become more like himself. That's amazing news. So, point number four is God's grace is bigger than the failings of his people. That's the main idea for today. If you take away nothing else, it's, it's that. If you look at this text and there's all these these images and these parables, and, and it's confusing to you. If there's nothing else that, that pops out for you, this amazing grace that God offers should be that, that all, that all sins will be forgiven, whatever blasphemies they utter. It's God's grace is bigger than the failings of his people. But it doesn't end there. Jesus says, but. There's always that, but. So it is true. Everything will be forgiven. And then Jesus moves on and says, but. There is this one thing. He says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So verse 29, what is it to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and why is this an eternal sin? So this is where we want to pause a moment. We've just seen this amazing, glorious truth of God's grace to us. And then Jesus puts there, but there's this thing. And when, if Jesus is saying that, we need to stop and listen and focus and be like, okay, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm tracking. What is that thing? What is this, this one thing that is just so bad that it becomes this unforgivable sin, an eternal sin, as it's put? If such a sin exists, we should we should know about it, and we should make sure that we ourselves are not drifting toward that uh, intentionally, unintentionally, and that those around us who we know are not doing it either. So what is it to blaspheme? Um, is it bad words like in movies, you know, people will exclaim like, oh my God, it's like, is that, that is blasphemy. That is a type of blasphemy. Is it cursing uh, in certain ways? It is that. But here and in, in, the, in most of Scripture, what blasphemy is, is making God something that he is not. So we'll see that it's, it's distorting the character of God. It's making him small when he is immeasurably big. It's making him cruel when he is magnificently benevolent. It's making him foolish when he is incomprehensibly wise. And is making him evil when he is magnanimously good. Now, yes, I went and found the biggest words that I could. Because even in the biggest words that you can find, you cannot capture how, how just above all those things God is. When God is good, he's not just good. It's, it's, we cannot wrap our minds around it. We are so small. But we can affirm that he is good and say that he is not evil. So when we're doing those things, when we're saying, okay, no, actually, you know, in my thinking, I'm going to make God small here, and I'm going to put his word under my foot and do what I want. Or I'm going to say, oh, God, that was cruel of you. How could you do that? Or, God, what, what, what I read in Scripture here seems foolish to me. When we do things like that, we are questioning who God is, because his word is, in a way, not 
removable from his person. God's word is, it comes forth because it's part of who he is. And so when you challenge that, you're challenging and demeaning who God is. Since the Holy Spirit was God's agent in effecting the exorcisms that these guys were witnessing, to attribute them to Satan was to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. The Pharisees basically came down from Jerusalem to correct this, this faulty thinking that they thought the people had. They're saying, we have heard these reports about Jesus who's doing these miracles, and we need to come and see this. Because someone is claiming, we don't see it in Mark, but we see it in the parallel passages, I think in Matthew, where it, it, it's put out there that it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that the, the, Jesus is doing these things. So the Pharisees come to clear this up, that no one's doing anything in the name of God by God's power here. And then they end up committing this crime, this, this sin. So here I think, I'm going to say this slowly and it's, I'll repeat it, but this is essentially what this unfor- unforgivable sin is. When a person deliberately and disrespectfully slanders the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit, who points to the lordship and redemption that is in Jesus Christ, he forfeits the possibility of forgiveness of sins because he has wholly rejected the only basis of God's salvation. Does that make sense? It's not just an accidental, oh, I committed the sin, no, no, and it's eternal. It's this real and long hardening of the heart that's saying that thing, that, that message, that person, that is not God. That's something else. Or it's basically just resisting this grace that God has put out there for us through his Son that the Holy Spirit testifies to us. Where there's that, the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit in you saying, yes, yes, receive this grace. It is Jesus who has done this. You can come to him for that forgiveness. And you keep, in, in a way, just resisting and saying, no, I'm not good enough for that. No, I've done too much. I've committed too many sins. Or, or no, you know, I don't really believe in this uh, literal devil and, and demons and angels. And God, you know, oh, come on, this is an old belief. I don't need to, to, to believe all that stuff. And the Bible, oh, we don't need that anymore. If that is where someone ends, that in itself becomes this unforgivable sin. It's this eternal rejection, continual rejection of who God is. I'll read that again. When a person deliberately and disrespectfully slanders the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit in pointing to the lordship and redemption of Jesus Christ, he forfeits the possibility of forgiveness of sins because he has wholly rejected the only basis of God's salvation. They were slandering Jesus specifically, but Jesus equivocates us. He says, at the same time you're doing that, you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not going to go into the verses of this, but it is weird. They come and give Jesus the charge. They say, he is possessed by uh, Beelzebul, prince of demons. And Jesus says, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. You go, but wait a minute. They weren't talking about the Holy Spirit. They were talking about Jesus. What's actually going on here? And this is where this doctrine of the Trinity, that we actually sang about this morning, this beautiful mystery of God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as one God, three persons, one essence, three persons. That's pretty much as much as I can actually try and explain the the Trinity, and I probably committed some heresy even in just saying that. But it 
when you understand that Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and when you blaspheme one, you blaspheme God, that's what Jesus is saying. saying the Spirit that is in me, the, the, the Holy Spirit that is the power by which these things are happening, is the Spirit of God. So if you blaspheme me, and this is where he starts drawing this connection, which ultimately leads to his crucifixion. Jesus, by doing this, is inferring that when you insult him, you're insulting God. And slowly but surely, as we go through the Gospel of Mark, you're going to see this, this thing. The Pharisees make that connection, and ultimately, they put him to death for claiming that he is God. Many people wonder if they can accidentally commit this sin. If you're sitting here and you're wondering even, like, oh my goodness, have I committed that sin? Have I committed this eternal, unforgivable sin? If you're even wondering that, I'm going to say, no, you haven't. Because your heart is still softened enough to know and ask the question, uh, have I done it? If you're, if, if you're just sitting and you, if you're just, you know, out the window and you're like, whatever, I'm just here because someone brought me here and I have to be here. I'm going to ask the question, maybe, perhaps you need to ask the question of, are you committing this right now? So, how do we respond to that? We respond to this, these two legs. We see first this amazing forgiveness. All sins will be forgiven men. And then we see, but there's this one that we need to be very aware of. The first is to, uh, to, to receive it and to worship him. That's the first response. We see this glorious, glorious grace that he's put there. And we say, yes, Lord, I will receive that. The second is to respond in repentance. All of us need to repent in some way. All the time. It's a continual repentance. It's a continual receiving God's grace. Coming to Him and saying, yes, I've sinned. I've fallen short. But Lord, I know You're so much bigger than that and that You can cover over those sins because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I put my faith in that. And I, and I, would, I would receive that, Lord. I, w- I want to be obedient to what it is You will have me do. And then it's that. That third is obedience. Which leads us to the closing of the sandwich that I told you about earlier. We've got this sandwich in the text. We saw there's uh, Jesus' family is mentioned. Then we've gone on this trail where Jesus uses this parable, and he talks about Satan and demons, and he explains things, and now he comes back to talking about his family. So, verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around, uh, around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now this is not a Mother's Day message, so hopefully no one will ever try to preach this on Mother's Day. But in that culture at the time, Jesus... Uh, this, and we've lost it in many ways, but this reverence for those who are older than us, this reverence for someone's parents, it was immense. You wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't if you, you're somewhere and you know, you're, you're there uh, hanging out with your friends and your mother comes from Nazareth all the way to Capernaum to knock on your door and say, no, 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 I'm looking for you, I need to talk to you. It's, it's like, kind of, you stop what you're doing and you go out there and you talk to her. Um, but what Jesus says is uh, a little different. Um, what he does is basically he just says 
well, his mother was standing outside and calling him. There's so many people around that they, she couldn't even get to him, the, the, his mother and brothers. They couldn't get to him. So they say to other people, hey, go in and call Jesus. Go in and call Jesus. And then he starts his, his reply to this request. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? And he looks around at them um, and he says, um, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And I can just imagine Mary's eyes being like, you? He said, what? Like, what are you saying? Because at first it seems to us like this is some kind of stab at his family. And he's going like, oh my goodness, like how can you do that, Jesus? You're rejecting your family and saying, they're no longer your family, but these other people are your family. That's not what's going on here in the scripture. What we see is something more nuanced than that. He's saying, um, he's, he's not saying that you shouldn't be associated with people who aren't Christian. Like there are some uh, denominations or sects that would say, completely remove yourself from the world. If your family isn't becoming Christian, completely remove yourself from them and don't have anything to do with them. I would say that attitude is completely the opposite of what we see in the Gospels, is that we need to be a light in the world to our family and a light to our friends. You've got to stay, you've got to stay near them and, and live a separate life that they'll look at that and be like, oh man, there's something different. And Jesus gives us a key to what that is. He says, those who do the will of God are the ones who are closer to him than those who were even physically related to him at the time. And at the time, we know that his, uh, his brothers and his mother even weren't, weren't saved. It was only after Jesus' resurrection and his appearances to them that they really actually became Christians and eventually went on to, to write um, some of the letters we have in the New Testament. But what we see is Jesus saying that those who are my family are, are those who do the opposite of resisting that grace. They do the opposite of rejecting me as the scribes have done, and they do the opposite of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So at this point, Jesus is just saying those who do the will of God. And so his listeners sitting there... Um, and Wade and I chatted about this a little bit yesterday, and I actually missed it because I'm, I'm just, you know, maybe a bit overzealous jumping ahead. But at that time when the, the audience were hearing him, they didn't know that he was going to be crucified. They didn't know that he would ascend. They still had this different idea of what the Messiah was. They were basically left with Jesus saying, whoever does the will of God. And so their minds would have snapped to, oh, the will of God, that's the Old Testament law, um, Jesus is busy, like not changing it, but uh, uh, interpreting it better for us. And, and so they are like obedience, obedience to the law, knowing that God has manifested himself and shown him to us. That's where their mind was going. But what we know is that it is also so much more than that for us. We're, we're standing separated. We're on the other side of seeing Jesus crucified and raised from the dead by God. So what we know is that Jesus was saying, Yes, do the will of God, but then there's this, this extra thing, and we're going to get to that. So let me jump forward to Mark 12, 28. If you have your Bibles, page along, if you will. It's a, uh, a bit of a chunk we're reading, 28, verse 28 to 34. Mark 12, 28 to 34. It's on the screen here as well. Okay. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing. 
with one another. So again, we see the scribes. This is way later in the book of Mark, just before, or not just before, but really close to where Jesus is going to be uh, uh, crucified. And he's still got this going on with the scribes. They're still clashing. He says, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, that is that Jesus answered them well, asked him, this is the scribe asking Jesus, he says, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, oh, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one asked him any more questions. So what do we see here? The question I asked was, well, what is the will of God? Jesus is t- talking about his, to, to these people who are with him. He's saying, those who are my brothers and my sisters um, and my mother are those who do the will of God. Later, we see Jesus giving this explanation of, well, what is that commandment? What is the will of God? It's two things, two legs. is love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Simple. But then, later in, 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 in the Gospel of John, and we're going to turn there, as we close, we see that Jesus affirms everything else that he himself teaches is the will of God, because Jesus is God. He doesn't say it at this stage early on in the book of Mark, as we, we, we're looking at today, but he, he says it later, and he makes it abundantly clear that everything he teaches is for us to, to hold on to and affirm as the infallible ultimate word of God. So jump ahead to, or flip, if you will, to John 12, verse 44 to 50. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus draws this, this, this next piece in for us, which is saying the old law that they would have understood is basically summed up in two things. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself, and then he affirms And everything that we see from here in John 12, he says, everything that I've brought to you, I've said because it's God who's giving that to me to say. 
So where the response to that scribe that we saw in Mark 12 was, you are not far from the kingdom of God, that Jesus hadn't given this next piece. They didn't know about grace by faith in Christ and his atoning work. They hadn't gotten there yet. But we, on the other side, we do know that. We have that. And we can, we can really just live in that grace, knowing that every sin is covered by God. No matter what it is, you can turn to him, you can bring that to him, and he will, he will graciously give you forgiveness. God is bigger than the failings of his people, and daily on offer, offer to us is this grace. And daily we receive it. Daily we trust Jesus as Lord, whose words are life and truth. Why don't you bow your heads and we'll pray together. Oh, Father God, we're just so aware of your immeasurable grace, Lord. We don't have the words to express how good you are to us, Lord. Grappling with some, some tough, some strange scriptures today, Lord, it's, it's been a, a challenge for us. But we know that you, Lord, are ultimately in control and the things that you've given us are for our benefit. I pray, Lord, that as we've read these scriptures, as we've dug into them today and learned so much about your character, about how gracious you are in offering us forgiveness when, when we just don't deserve it, Lord. I pray that we would turn to you in worship and in praise, knowing that there is nowhere else to go. There is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. But come to you, we can come to the foot of your cross and kneel and say, yes, Lord, you have done it where I cannot. And we also pray, Lord, for those around us who, in a way, are rejecting you, who are, it seems, committing that sin that is the eternal sin and blaspheming you and not believing in you, Lord. We pray for them and we pray that you would give us the courage and the boldness um, by your Spirit working in us to go out and spread this great news of your gospel. Pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Thanks for listening, and remember that you were brought into the church by the saving work and person of Jesus. Also, that you are sent out to tell everyone about him. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Mountain View Scattered.